This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I don't know about you, but I follow quite a few online groups dedicated to sharing historical photos of Melbourne and surrounding suburbs. And I actually never really thought this was a unique interest or anything, but I had no idea how widespread history and historical social sharing groups were, apps, digital history sites, uh, scratch the surface, and there's groups dedicated to specific suburbs, historic bridges, and all sorts of other interest groups. And of course, Associate Professor Dave Nichols is all over this. Uh, he's even co in a paper analysing a specific app called Passport uh, that has renewed interest in the urban history of Port Melbourne and um, Dave's with the University of Melbourne. He's a senior lecturer in urban planning and he comes in once a month and yeah, big, this is a big area of interest and I figure that you must follow lots of isn't different it, It's groups. a huge thing, isn't it, Talia? And hello and hi, Dylan. Hello. Um, it's, um, it's a massive uh, phenomenon or is it no a phenomenon? And um, yeah, I was just uh, oddly enough, I was just looking at uh, a lot of things come up in my feed. I I find it it fascinating how there's there are kind of two. We're talking Facebook here. There are two kinds of uh, groups where you have some that are closed groups, and there is quite a bit of you know possessiveness about territory, and then there are some that you know are happy to to be as open as as anything. But the closed the closed ones, there's a lot of um, I mean, thinking about, let's say, Port Melbourne is a good example. There, there are others that are similar. I mean, Port Melbourne is, of course, a suburb that has gentrified, like, through the freaking roof in the last 20, 30 years. It's, you know, it's really... And so a lot of a lot of people who are on um, born and bred Port Melbourne, well, you know, the name says it all. It's about people who grew up in Port Melbourne. It's not necessarily about people who are currently being born or, or being bred in Port Melbourne or, you know, or who have bought a $2 million cottage there uh so it's so that's that's kind of a, a closed thing and it is a lot like oh my friends from primary school in you know 1967 where are they now that that kind of a thing but a lot of a lot of vintage pictures as well so it has that that element to it but i guess there's i guess what i'm trying to say is there's a big difference between you know holding on to the history i'm not saying the born and bred people are um exclusive or you know um elitist in any way but that that is part of their their thinking, and then there are the history groups that are um, are really just uh, all about uh, vintage, particularly vintage photos. I think there's a, there's a lot of that. Lost Footscray is a great one. I was looking at that last night. Um, they had a, a really interesting. It was one of those things where it really hits the mark. Uh, there's a little building. I don't know. People might know it in Ballarat Road called um, the Lonesome Road. Well, it's got a sign on it that says Lonesome Road Folk Coffee House. Obviously, it hasn't been a folk coffee house, whatever that may be, for, um, you know, 30 or 40 years, but it still has the sign up. And a lot of people were reminiscing about their days, um, at, uh, in that, in that place, which, um, you know, and I, I learned a lot about it just from that, that I, I'd actually researched that place before and I had never, um, uh, I hadn't really turned up anything much at all. And in this instance, a lot of people's reminiscences, reminiscences were extremely uh, useful and, and interesting to me. Yeah, and so, so who, I mean, in these kind of online forums and, and the ones that you've kind of perused, who is participating? Are these kind of members of, of historical societies, people who might have had a sort of long-standing interest in history of an area already? Or are you, are you noticing kind of people having a renewed or, or finding an interest in local history who are really kind of getting involved and, and commenting and sharing photos. Great question, because it is really diverse. I mean, it is some people who are just using these sites to, you know, get in touch with people they went to school with or, you know, uh, you know, uh, remember me, you know, I used to hang out with your sister, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then there's also, and people, you know, uploading pictures from their own, you know, primary school and saying who can identify you know these people in this photo that kind of stuff or there are people who just want to put up a picture of an outside toilet and say oh remember this you know what you know kids these days don't understand you know um (laughs) and that kind of you know so uh those kinds of learnings but um on the on the whole it is a massively diverse it does depend partly on the strength of the historical society in a particular area so some places um are not perceived to have, you know, obviously coming from the position that I come from, uh, um, I'm well aware that every place has history. Um, but the, 
but there's and there's also there's kind of um, there's there's value in it as well in in many ways. So, you know, I guess the inner the inner suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, there are a lot of people who not only do they have a strong awareness of the history of the area, uh, and there are books about it, and there's there's you know resources, um, but they also have something vested in that because to a certain degree, the the amount of history that's that's in the area, so to speak, and the amount of heritage awareness and so on also reflects on the you know the the financial value of their houses and their and the sort of the cultural value and the cultural stake they have in their lifestyle. So that's a that's a um, a particular way of looking at it. There are also um, places where there's not particularly strong sense of history, but people have kind of fill that gap, I think, through social media by putting in, uh, you know, um, by making posts that reflect their own um, particular life, their own, you know, who remembers, you know, so-and-so who ran the shop on the corner, that kind of stuff. That's, um, that is, you know, I think about kind of putting your hand up and saying, well, you know, my, it's not just my life matters, which is, you know, a perfectly fine thing to say, but, you know, maybe not quite the point I think they're trying to make. It's like, you know, we had a society, we had a, a culture here, um, you know, is it is it still around or is it gone? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's part of who who they are. And I I mean in in the past before um, this phenomena of people sharing the photos they might have. Pretty or sure it's a phenomenon. Phenomenon. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm not entirely but certain but um, please sorry. Well I'm, I'm having learnings this morning too, yeah, you Dave. Have, we're all uh, having learnings right now. So um, Prov, the Public Records Office and the State Library of Victoria and, and other kind of library um, setups might have been the, the, the keepers of these um, photographs and mainly photographs in, in the past and have them in some sort of an order or whatever. With these um, social sharing sites, is there another level happening where, you know, they all get uploaded but is anyone putting them in in particular order or does is that not the point? Is there, there no... Yeah, it's a great Need question. I mean, I think that's that's part of, in a way, that's look. We all know, just like almost almost anything you could possibly name, there's an interpretation element, and um, I'm not in the in the camp where I would say that everybody's opinion is valid when it comes to, particularly when it comes to um, understanding the what a what a picture depicts or, or whatever. But um, there is certainly a in, in many instances, there are things in uh, the State Library's collections or in Public Records Office where the actual, you know, the institution is not entirely certain of the place or things can be mislabeled or, you know, misrepresented in some way. So there's a nice check and balance to that when, when something like that gets out into the, uh, into the public arena and people go, well, wait a minute, you know, that's not actually, you know, facing north on Barker's Road. That's, you know, that kind of thing. But... Um, but there's also, um, you know, I mean, I think things do sort of get, you know, out into the uh, into the ether there, and they can be, um, you know, used in various ways. I mean, I do think, as I as I was kind of insinuating, I think a lot of or saying, I think a lot of people um, look at this kind of stuff and just go, oh, that's a that's a lifestyle that's gone. In more recent times, you know, you used to be able to leave your front door open, which I'm pretty sure no one ever did, but. Um, you know, and you, everyone trusted each other and, you know, um, all of those kind of, and a whole lot of other, you know, things that enlightened people like us might consider quite sinister the way that the people will look at the past, um, with, uh, rose colored glasses. So there's, there's different ways of, of using that stuff. But when it's, when it's out there, I mean, I think apart from anything else, I guess I have the same kind of, um, the same kind of attitude about this sort of thing as, um, uh, as people did when, you know, oh, all the kids are reading Harry Potter. Yeah, but it gets them reading. So all the old people are looking at historical photographs. Yeah, well, it gets them interested in history and maybe it gets them going out and, and trying to contextualise some of these things or look at some, uh, some under, some of the underlying, um, premises of why you would, why you would look at history and what, what you get out of it and what you understand about your present from that. Yeah, it points to something that, that, um, you, you're kind of touching on around quality control when you're crowdsourcing content or crowdsourcing history in this particular instance. And for, for a lot of people, some of these forums might, their engagement with it might be quite intermittent. They might dip in and out, see a, a photo that, you know, represents something, something from their childhood or something like that. And they might not look at it for another, another month or two. But, but is there an issue with, 
with, um, I guess, looking at the Passport app as one particular example that's been developed for kind of sharing and, and developing a local history. Have there been issues with quality control in that instance or at least making sure that what's uploaded is, I guess, of, of, of interest to people? Well, on the Passport app, I must say, I myself have put up some real rubbish. And, um, I why, did, why did you do that, for that, Dave? No, well, um, I, <laughs> partly because I wanted to start conversations with other, with other people. So I was trying to be a little bit of a small p provocateur on that. Um, and so, but really I was putting in anything that kind of, uh, established a place as anything. So, um, I was looking at it this morning again, um, by the way, I, I put something new on, on there today, which I, I must tell you about. But the, um, I was looking at it, and, you know, just things I found in newspapers are like people advertising for staff at the craft factory. And I just, I just, you know, clip that, that classified ad from 1971 or whatever and, and stick it in the appropriate street address, um, just in case people would come along and go, well, what, what the hell was in that part of Port Melbourne? They click on that icon and they'd see that and they'd go oh actually you know my uncle worked at the craft factory i've got photos you know that that kind of thing which um has yet to happen but may yet still happen um you've got to put these things out there and see um see what you attract so um no there hasn't been a huge issue with quality control most of the material that's there is of very high quality i mean i think that what's um the only the quality is varied in the sense that some sometimes um, people are very low on on inf- on you know surrounding information, and sometimes there are things that you wouldn't really necessarily apply the word quality to because they're questions like what's this what what's happening here those kinds of things. Um, the other thing that uh, talking about quality and talking about the rubbish that I put up there, which is you know I mean of course I was being a little bit um, flippant, but um, I. I did a search on um, murder stories from, you know, a long time ago. You know, I think it's, you know, on the principle that if someone would actually have died of natural causes by now, um, it's not really a murder anymore, is it? It's just interesting, which, of course, is entirely untrue. And I, I don't like that um, interpretation of, you know, or that, that interest in history that surrounds me. I hate those, those true crime stuff, you know, all that kind of... Um, Chunk. So not a podcast listener then. I'm not a podcast. I am, but you know, it's very thin. It's, it's slim pickings when you not when you eliminate when the true crime, crime stuff. But um, but I did find some crime stories that I just thought um, had a little bit of extra interesting context about um, that told you something about, particularly about Fisherman's Bend, the Fisherman's Bend area, which of course is now a um, very industrial, but won't be for much longer because it's all being rezoned for residential. So. Um, something that told you about the kind of desolate nature and the fact that it would would have been a place where you could go and you know, uh, cool place to dump a body kind of thing, um, in the 1920s or whatever. So um, so I put those and that once again I was just kind of like, you know, laying a trap. Fishing exercise. Yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> um, do, uh, Associate Professor Dave Nichols is with us. We're talking about urban history apps and and particularly one called Past Port, uh, which is um, centred around the Port Melbourne area and one that um, Dave and has um, co-written a paper about. And just having a look at, I suppose, this phenomenon of um, sharing images from the past in Melbourne um, in different local areas and what we get out of it. And I suppose it's massive. You know, there's, there's so much of this going on. And I, I, I must say that before we get back to Passport, that I, I grew up in, in, in and around Eltham and there was this massive flood once and all the footbridge bridges got knocked out mm, mm. and they rebuilt them higher and out of concrete mm. and, and they're very functional now. But I missed the old ones because they were just so beautiful mm. uh, and had never taken a photo of them. And I suppose I'd love to see pictures of that sort of a thing where uh, they're parts of my mm. memory that because when you're... They exist. Well, they will mm. somewhere. They'll probably just exist in the library down there. I don't know. But, but that sort of stuff. And, you know, I lived in Elfington for a while and and there was, you know, a hole in my street which was gone now. And so, and you don't think to take photos of these places, but some people do. Mm. They mm. think, oh, I'm going to, I care about that. I'm going to take a picture also, of it and keep do. it. And I mean, councils, councils have. Uh, and Google does these days. Right. Yes, that's true. That's true. But councils will have, um, you know, council workers when they build something like that, or if they're just doing maintenance work, they'll go, they'll take some photos, and those things will often, mind you, there has there was a you know a, appalling attrition of the um, associated with the mid nineties council amalgamations where a lot of stuff got shredded, uh, but you know a lot of stuff is in the public records office. So yeah, absolutely. Um, well. Uh, I hope your dream comes true that you do end up seeing pictures of the old footbridges. Well, I could just ask my parents. They might have taken one. I suppose they haven't even done that yet. Why That's would how... they? Why would... Well, they wouldn't have, Why? probably. You know. No. Call, 
called Child Protective Services. This lady's I going taking photos of footbridges <laughs> all up and down Eltham. What's yeah, it? and I don't what, think... What's what's going on crazy I don't think National Geographic, you know, the bridges of Medicine County, I don't no, think they no, sent anyone no, to take the photos of them. Well, well, if anyone out there has taken photos, then <laughs> yeah. Yeah. let us know. Send them yeah. in. You can put them on our Facebook page. Yeah, yes. Yeah, we no, can put, them in, put them in passport because this is what I wanted to say. Oh, it's not just for Port no, Melbourne. it is. What we did was... Like, by the way, I just so want I to wrong. say the paper is was published in Australian Historical Studies. I just want to say that early this year, so it, it is out. It's in. It's um, it exists. Uh, yes, what what we did was we've used Port Melbourne as the um, that's the case study area, and that's that's where we uh, engaged the the local community. We thought it was a very interesting place for the reasons that I outlined when we started talking. You know that there's been such a change there in the last few decades, and. Also, they have a very strong historical society. Uh, so there was, and, and a lot of people that are, you know, very interested in, in the, in the history of the, of the area and who we could work with. So all of those reasons, also the Fisherman's Bend stuff. So, um, nevertheless, if you go into the app and you just, it's just, um, you know, search on passport, you will find that uh, many search engines, uh, think that you can't, don't know how to spell passport, but it's actually passport. But um, you can go outside the Port Melbourne boundary and do whatever you want. You can go around the world. Um, you know, we we had we had um, jokes amongst ourselves about how people could potentially oh, I shouldn't say this, but potentially misuse it. You know, in in terms of like going going far and away and um, doing something nefarious. But um, do, do you academics have fun? Don't you? That was a joke that we had. That was the one joke we had that year. Yeah, <laughs> um, we had to um, get permission from the dean to uh, to make the joke, and then we um, and then we scheduled laugh time later. But um, so what I did uh, quite a while ago. Um, once again, my kind of um, it's quite boring, but I put one. Uh, I I put a little uh, icon in Albion, which is where I uh, presently live. Uh, nothing fascinating, but I just I just wanted to stake a bit of territory. But this morning I put one. Um, just about where we are now, um, a, um, a little a news item about something that happened at the Lomond uh, Hotel in 1938 that I just... Um, what happened? Well, go and have a look. <laughs> go and have a look. This is a learnings for you. Learnings. Learnings. It's all about learnings. It's all about learnings. Yes. So, um, you know, it, yes, it can be, it can be used, um, well... You know, worldwide, really, but it's it can be used Melbourne wide. I, I really, um, I really hope that some listeners will go and you know, just go and search because we have some we have some fabulous stuff there. Going back to the Port Melbourne stuff, we have some great um, sort of linked up tours as well. So you can actually walk. The idea is one of the big ideas is you walk the area and you a experience. You know, you go from um, place to place and and learn about. Um, the, the particular places and their their relevance. So people could uh, actually set their own walking tours like this up for their own area as that's well. That's right. That's right. And exactly. the app and the app exactly. caters for that. Mm. So so we had we have one about um, prominent women and we have one about um, football, um, those kinds of tours and and some more kind of um, you know port specific uh, tours as well in there. And it's just I mean I think it's sort of um, fun reading. I think one of the things that you have to uh, Port Melbourne is a good ex- a good thing to talk about. Um, speaking of which, have I been like talking forever? And yeah, is, I was going to like say midday now. Well, uh, Heather, um, <laughs> Heather Holst um, from Launch Housing is waiting in the green room for Whoa, her turn. Heather, okay, sorry. Um, I just wanted to say that Port Melbourne is is really relevant to the whole of Melbourne anyway. So it's it you know it's a it's a good it's a good one as a test run, and it's interesting to all Melbourneites, I would hope, because it's it's not just about port although obviously a lot of people um who who live there would find it interesting but it's also um a big part of the history of of the city of course because that's mm. where things came in to melbourne came originally in, almost everything yeah. through port melbourne for a long time thanks dave and for the first time this year the annual city of melbourne street count was extended outside the city and into neighboring areas of yarra port phillip stonnington and maribyrnong and the aim of the street counts to get a good gauge on uh, how many people are sleeping rough in the city and launch housing is one of the groups involved with it. Heather Holst is deputy CEO over there and it's uh, always great to have you on Triple R, Heather. Welcome. Thanks, Camille. Thanks, Dylan. And uh, so it happened a couple of weeks ago and I think a lot of people would have heard the results, but it'd be good to recap on those. 
things. Um, but I suppose in summary, 400 volunteers go out, they collect information from people that are sleeping rough on the street um, and that information I suppose goes into informed services uh, 392 people this year sleeping rough in, across that city area yeah that's what we found yeah yeah um, so as you say it's um, the city of Melbourne has been doing this um, since 2008 actually this is the um, and they they began doing it every year then every two years um, so they've used the same method uh, since the beginning, so we've just kept that same method. So there's a comparison um, possible, which is really important to kind of understand, you know, what's going on. Um, and as you say, Coolia, this time it was extended to the four adjoining councils um, in that sort of inner city area. There'd been a lot of interest in whether, you know, whether people were getting pushed here or there, particularly um, last year when there was a lot of talk uh, from the city of Melbourne about tightening up move-on laws. Um, there was a, a feeling that, you know, maybe... Uh, people were getting pushed around, would be going down to Port Phillip, over to Yarra, up to, to Maribyrnong, whatever. Um, so that was part of the thinking. It's also true that local government, as the kind of really closest to the action level of government, are uh, much more sensitive and about this issue and want to know as much as they can about what's going on in their areas. And so yeah. it's volunteers that go out and do it. It's not the police or, any, or there's a, a, a group of people who, yeah, who does yeah. it. So what happened this time is um, the Inner Metropolitan Area um, Councils, IMAP, as they're called, there's an acronym, um, commissioned launch... Uh, to do it for them and the City of Melbourne have commissioned us the last couple of times to do it for them so uh, we uh, with the councils organise a heap of volunteers a lot of them are um, actually people who work in the homelessness sector um, or related so they're pretty familiar with how things work but they um, turn up at the organising points around the uh, whole district at uh, it was quarter to three in the morning. It's a little bit misty. <laughs> was it quarter to three or three? Um, and then we go out in teams of around four or five um, with one kind of team leader who has a bit more knowledge about rough sleeping, how to make a call on something that might be a little bit sticky. Um, and the idea of this count is it's observation, particularly three, four, four thirty in the morning. Um, people aren't up and about. And know. in winter. Mm. Correct, yeah. And actually the winter thing's an important point too. The idea is, and this is a bit of an international methodology, the idea is that that's the people who are seriously stuck in a particular location, um, that anyone who's got any other favours they can call in will have done it. Uh, and it was a really cold, cold morning actually. Um, so the idea is it's an absolute bedrock type of figure. Um, so... Um, and then the the second part of the count is that where there are breakfast programs, lunch programs, um, people are picked up there too. And the idea is, you know, did you participate? Did anyone leave a card at your camp? So we take some pains to make sure we're not double counting. And that's where we tend to get people willing to answer a few questions as well and where the, you know, a bit more data comes in. Mm. And so again, from this count, we've seen, as I understand it, an increase in the number of, of rough sleepers in and around Melbourne. From speaking to people and I guess observing, um, you know, the, the kind of situation out there, do you have much of a sense of, of the factors, any surprising results that are leading people into homelessness now as opposed to a number of years ago or are they quite similar? I think it's, um, it's a bit more of the same, really, Dylan. Um, there is an interesting finding within this that, um, the city of Melbourne only ever used to count one part of the city. They didn't used to do the parks and reserves, for example, um, and some of the um, points further up into Carlton. Um, so that uh, when you take the same area over the years to this one, there's actually a 15% reduction in the same area. Um, I take that as encouraging because there's been quite a lot of resourcing put in there. Um, and the point is that uh, services backed up with housing it does work <laughs> you know it's not um, a, a sort of hopeless problem that can't be addressed what no one has has organized to do yet is this sort of turning off the tap bit um so what we know is that very few of those men and women will be the same as two years ago there's an incredible turnover and flow through um so agencies are you know getting people housed but people keep arriving because they're, you know, falling out of uh, really tight rental markets. Domestic violence factors keep happening. People keep getting sick or a disability that means they can't uh, kind of keep the rent up. So those sort of factors with the harshness of the um, housing market 
uh, mean people getting keep getting produced in. Mm. Yeah, yeah and, and I read um, from the latest count that. 58% of those surveyed were not on social housing waiting lists either. So is there, I guess, an issue with, with signing people up to these lists and, 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 I guess, accessing them and reaching out to them in the first place to ensure there might be some plan for them for getting them into housing? That, that's absolutely right. Um, but then it's a hell of a place to wait for public housing, isn't it? Mm. So 42% were on the list, and that takes some doing to get on the list. Uh, you've got to assemble a heap of paperwork, um, you know, verification of your situation, uh, and, you know, generally speaking, you need a worker to help you with that, to vouch for you, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then, where are you waiting for it? You know, the most severe cases. So, um, two things there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, what what would have happened since the last count is we've had a change of Lord Mayor. Um, is there an indication that the council is going to change its approach to, to rough, rough sleepers in particular in the City of Melbourne? And it was a couple of days after the count, which was a Tuesday morning. I think it was the Thursday evening of that week. Uh, they actually formally voted to remove uh, that motion that would have was still hanging there in the City of Melbourne uh, because uh, they'd paused on what they were hoping you know planning to implement uh, for move on uh, so it's now formally it's off the table mm-hmm. now what will happen for for the people who were part of the the kind of census there well um a, a lot of mayors came out um the minister for housing came out as well um so he he came out on in one of the port philip St Kilda uh, counts. so there's a lot of interest and uh commitment to trying to to respond that's probably another pretty heartening part of it um obviously no one federally came out and or has shown a heap of interest and they're key to this too aren't they the federal government yeah they they really are so so homelessness and housing money is is sort of a federal state matter with the feds saying here's here's how much of the pie you're going to get let's talk about how we deliver it um so and also of course they control a lot of the other housing measures uh, tax treatments all those sort of things that are actually really uh, the factors that mm. are going on yeah. yeah and you've commissioned a new study the Australian Homelessness Monitor which has had its first report this year talk to us if you can about what what that will do for I guess harnessing as much um kind of best practice and, and knowledge as we can about what's going on out there and what we can do to alleviate the situation yeah so the homelessness monitor is a real assembly of um policy-related information, I guess. Um, it's something that's been done in the UK for a, a few years now, and Hal Pawson, who's the lead author here for the Australian one too, uh, has come out to uh, Sydney, as uh, English people like to do from time to time and settle there. Um, so he's um, happily the lead author on this. So um, it links uh, the kind of trends in homelessness to things like um, what's happening at Centrelink with income support, um, you know, what's happening with housing prices. So it really um, looks at those other factors rather than just one piece of the, the puzzle. And obviously uh, the income support levels, you, you know, triple R listeners won't be uh, strangers to how grim the new start position is, um, how grim any sort of dealing with Centrelink actually is now, um, the punitive nature of it, the extremely slow uh, application process, uh, you know, you can be eligible but not get any income for a very long time. All that sort of stuff is a direct feed, a direct feed into homelessness, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, and we've been talking about rough sleeping specifically, but of course that's just a portion of, of the, the number of people who are actually homeless. Yeah, that's right. So uh, on, on this one night, someone might have been sleeping rough, but they might have a friend's couch that they can sleep on, you know, just one night when they're really desperate, another time. So if you just took a snapshot um, you, you only get a part of the picture. Uh, so that's important to understand. So it seems at some levels of government anyway, uh, there is a sort of an evidence base that's been used to, to inform decision making, but that's not necessarily across the board. And I, I suppose, you know, for, there is a lot of um, pointing at Finland these days on education and a whole range of different things. Um, during this period of the, the street count, I saw a number of articles about what Finland's doing and basically we're going to see an ending, an end to homelessness in Finland. Uh, is that because they've taken an evidence approach, Heather, to, to their approach to, to rehousing and housing people? For sure they have. Um, Finland has also done it uh, in a central way. So they've really knitted together their various... Because they don't have a federation like we do. Correct. That's my understanding. I mean, they still... I think there's still some provincial um, areas that have to cooperate as well. But the lead has been taken, uh, you know, by the central government. Um, They've been able, therefore, to flip, knowing the numbers, they've been able to flip their crisis 
sort of system into a housing, what's called a housing first system. So that's housing that you can stay in right from the beginning. The support is there for you until it can drop away, but you don't have to move houses. Um, so they've, uh, I don't think the lack of evidence is the issue in Australia. I think we've got really good evidence about what works, what needs to work. Um, what must have been different about Finland is that the, the voters and people of Finland must have said, we want this solved. And that's we want what the Australians, evidence listened to. <laughs> right. And, and Australians haven't, as a, as a whole, enough people said, we want this solved yet. So I believe it's that. And I, I suppose what Launch Housing has done, I mean, you've, you've, you've gone away, thought about how what you can do as an NGO. Um, Homeground is a not-for-profit real estate agent that's been set up. You're negotiated with Vic Roads and you've got some sort of surplus land. You're about to set up sort of housing there for people on, a, I suppose, a temporary basis, but over, what, 10 years or something like that. So there's a range of things that NGOs can do. Uh, I imagine that's making somewhat of a difference to some people's lives anyway. Oh, it makes a difference to some people's lives for sure. So we've got, you know, 400 properties in homegrown real estate, but look at the figures here. There's 392 people on that night on the streets in just five local government areas. Um, so the scale of the issue uh, has to be, um, you know, as Australians, we elect our governments to do things for us. Um, I was listening to something on the radio coming in about, you know, talking about government money. Well, you know, no, it's not government money. It's our money that we've, um, you know, directed the government to do certain things for us on. So I think people need a bit of a kind of you know, remind some of our elected representatives a bit of civics 101 there, you know, um, and say what we want solved. You know, we want good health care, we want good education, and we want everybody housed. Um, yeah. Thanks for coming in. It's always good to have you. Um, Heather Hulse, she's with Launch Housing, and uh, you can, um, for any of the things we talked about this morning, you can head to their website to find out more about it. Uh, thanks. We'll see you again um, soon. And it's NAIDOC Week, uh, a national celebration of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander culture. Every year there's a theme for NAIDOC, and this year's is Because of Her, We Can. And to talk all things NAIDOC and celebrate the contribution of women, we've got visual artist, author, community arts worker, educator, many more things, mother. Uh, Paola Bala with us. Uh, she's a Wimba Wimba and Gunditjmara woman whose work is currently part of the Next Matriarch exhibition on show this week at the Curry Heritage Trust over at Fed Square. And Paola's children, also artists, are with us too. Welcome Kate, Katen and Rosie and Paola. And it's great to have you all here for NADOC. And um, good to see you again, Paola, too. It's Thank been you. a little while. I and and I, I don't know, should we just... There's so much to talk about. Yeah. Should we... Um, talk about the women that are most important to each of you and each of your lives because because of her we can is really a pretty sensational theme for NADOC I think. Yeah we've been wrapped with it I mean my work um, you know and my family life our family life is very much centered around our matriarchs so I want to give a shout out to any aunties and grandmothers and all our sister girls our titters our yayans that are listening because they they really hold us up all the time so it's not just about you know the, the hashtag because of her we can but it is beautiful to see our women on this year in this way and yeah it means a lot to us all the time all year round so yeah and your work uh, at the moment um on down at the Curry Heritage Trust and people you know if you're in in at the city today at lunch or whatever or with the kids go in and see it it's free you can just uh, walk in off the street there at Fed Square and it's um part of the next matriarch uh exhibition and you um speak about matriarchal warriors your family um, just seems incredible and you go back six generations in this exhibition so you start with Rosie depending on which end you want to mm-hmm. you end with Rosie start with Rosie <laughs> and go back maybe can you tell us about the the women in your family yeah so the, the work that I've got in at the trust at the moment is called um, lovescapes and it's a tribute to our Wimba Wimba country which is my, our matriarchal country and uh, it begins with Papa um, great-great-grandmother who was actually um, a midwife and a really strong independent woman my mum describes her as a liberated woman for the time and so her photograph is from about the 1930s and then there's my great-grandmother, Nanny Nancy, who was noted as being one of the last speakers of Wemba Wemba language. That was by a white linguist. Um, we see her as, you know, our matriarch and language speaker. And then there's my grandmother, Rosie, who was an artist. And obviously I've named Rosie after her and she was very influential to me. And then my mum, Margie, who was, you know, a bit of an activist, stand-up comedian, um, first drag king I ever saw um, back in the 80s. She's a really tough woman and she's hilarious and she makes these two laugh all 
the time. <laughs> um, and then I placed myself and Rosie in, in that line. So they're photographic works on acetate film and they're about three metres long, so it's a big work. And um, behind the photographs is a five-metre wallpaper of our Wemba Wemba country. Um, so it's really... You know, personal, it's important. It's a tribute to all of those matriarchs for looking after us. You know, whether they're gone or, or not, they're still with us. We speak about them as if they're still with us. So that's how important they are. Yeah, wonderful. And, and Rosie and Kate, and you're still both, of course, very much carrying the torch and, and you have your own kind of artistic practices that are flourishing at the moment. Ro- Rosie, you just curated an amazing um, event down at the Footscray Community Arts Centre, Black to the Future. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you. It was... Um my first ever time curating an exhibition and it felt amazing to do that because you know it was kind of like literally my mum passing down the torch to me um, because she helped mentor us and it was a part of Woman Jacob Festival and I've had a really good relationship with Footscray Arts like for a really long time I remember going there you know as a kid and and then mum becoming you know on um on the Aboriginal advisory um, group there so having her kind of you know get us at me and Kate and my brother um, on board and um, doing that was amazing and it just felt really freeing as well to be able to kind of do what we wanted to do and just kind of decolonize and revitalize the space and it's having a lasting impact for sure like it's stirring up a bit like what I painted on on the wall um white Australia has a black future and it's something that I think is going to like continue on and just the fact that it's made my family so proud and my community my mob just having my back and just loving seeing black youth being represented um yeah it was amazing yeah and and was that whole um exhibition um the um young artists taking part in that or was there a mix of ages so it went from so my brother being the youngest at the time he was 13 he just turned 14 and up until i think it was like maybe 24 being the oldest um savannah possibly and myself being 22 so there was quite a bit of a range in there and also um 16 year old who was savannah's sister uh yeah big age range there Mm. so it was very much like centered on young folk yeah and and i guess as as one of the youngest kate and um was this the first time you'd exhibited as part of a a, an exhibition or or a project like this Um, more than just the first time exhibiting in an exhibition like first time really doing much art at all because i've never i mean i've always had artists in my family with my mum and my sister but i've never really like thought this is what I want to do so when you know they were like oh you should do this young indigenous um way to to voice yourself with this exhibition about all about young aboriginal people I was like yeah all right I wasn't really (laughs) I wasn't really that into it at the start and then I got there and then I was like this is dope and then I got to say what I wanted to say and what had been on my mind for a while and then I just got to say it so that was really great so yeah because yeah. of her, we can. Because of her, we can. Right. Yeah. yeah. And Caden's work was a massive hit. Um, I think it got, yeah, it's probably mm-hmm. the most social media um, images and people just taken with it because he did an ode to hip hop in his work. Can he swear? Can he tell you the title? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my work was called an ode to those that said fuck you because, to, I mean, like rap is my favourite music genre of all time because I think it's really important and how it was built off, uh, like the struggle from. The, like the Bronx in New York um, but it's all about saying that in rap no, you never, it's never really censored it's always just people saying what needs to be said so like they're not scared to say fuck you like NWA they said what was needed to be said or Tupac said what he needed to say you know all these groups that they they talk about what was actually happening and not just some filtered bullshit like other music genres and so what what um did it feel like to have your work shared so widely? Um I don't really know. I wasn't that it felt it didn't feel like uncomfortable. I was kind of I kind of it was I liked it a lot. It felt quite good because I could actually like people were coming through and I could see them like snapchatting it and I was like, "Oh damn, that's really cool." <laughs> so I don't know. It was, it was nice. Yeah, and so are you? Are you interested in kind of doing more more visual art stuff or music? I mean, given that you love sort of rap so much, is that kind of a, a thing for you that you kind of want to want to do more of? Yeah, I'd love to do that, 
any I'd love to do that. Any opportunity mm. to say what it needs to be said. It doesn't always have to be about rap, but I'd love to have my voice in, in some way. I think mm. he's looking for a show. <laughs> Let's talk. <laughs> Maybe talk to Neil. Maybe you could pop in with Neil. That'd be dope. Yes, still dope. here yeah, on yeah. a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are speaking with Paola Bella, Kate and, and Rosie. Um, it is NAIDOC week. We're celebrating Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander culture and also uh, matriarchs. Uh, the theme this year is Because of Her We Can and um, a range of works that we're speaking about. Um, Black to the Future has has closed now, but I mean, what what's going to come of it for you, do you think, Rosie? So working really closely with Savannah Kruger, we just really hit it off in the sense that we were kind of bouncing ideas off each other um, as long as um, Hannah Morphy Walsh as well in the space. And uh, we actually realised when the show, you know, when people were starting to come in, it was opening, that there were all women um, exhibited except for my brother. He was literally the only male in the entire show and that wasn't even something that was done on purpose. But it really made me realise how much, how many amazing women I have around me all the time. You know, I'm, I'm just so blessed. My family's incredibly matriarchal and I've just got the biggest group of sister girls around me. And so it was just kind of bound to happen. And that's something that I want to keep happening. Because, you know, when I look in the media and in the arts industry, it's not reflecting what our lives are like, you know, that it's not matriarchal and it's not Aboriginal. It's, it's, um, and that's something that I want to continue doing and just be another platform and, um, have just a collective of us just doing amazing women and black centered things and just make amazing spaces for people to come into and feel safe and I'm not sure exactly what that looks like because I'm thinking it's going to just kind of morph into itself but it's definitely a collective on its way and it's a working progress and we've got heaps of ideas coming so yeah definitely watch this space yeah and so many great things happening down at Footscray Community Arts Centre at, at sure. ACRA of course the exhibition that you were, you were part of recently Paula and also now at the Curie Heritage Trust with um, Next to Matriarch what was it like putting that together with the other artists that are exhibiting there because there are a number of you who have pieces as part of this exhibition was there a yeah. lot of kind of sharing of, of stories and, and your practice in putting that all together for Next Matriarch for Next Matriarch um, well look in this one I'm fortunate to just in this role just be an artist because of, you know, I work as a curator as well, but it's curated beautifully by Kimberly Moulton and uh, Liz Now. So it was a collaboration between, you know, an Aboriginal woman in Kimberley who's a Yorta Yorta woman and senior, you know, curator um, of Southeastern cultures at the museum. Um, but she's a art, visual artist curator in her own right. And then Liz Now's um, a really great, you know, white woman that works with us. And so they brought, uh, I think, the seven of us from around Australia. So it was actually originally for the Taranati um, uh, National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art um, Festival that was in uh, Adelaide, Ghana country last October. So it's actually travelled. So we've been really honoured that the Trust picked it up. Mm. And um, and I'm really honoured. I'm the only Koori woman in the show. And so I'm really encouraging our community to get down there because it's on until the 13th of July. So it, it's a beautiful touch point for the theme, for you know, because of her we can this mm. year. And I feel really proud to be representing our matriarchs in that work. And there's a, there's a panel talk on Wednesday night um, at the Trust at 6pm. I believe so people can check it out on Facebook but we're you know I'm really honoured and and I think it's, um, you know, I'm here obviously because of my matriarchs who were in the work that I mentioned before, but there's other women around us that hold us up and hold my family up because, you know, me and the kids, you know, and my partner, we live, you know, off country, you know, we, we live on Kulin country, our home country is, you know, Wemba Wemba, um, so we need our titters around us, so people like Karen Jackson and um, Kim Kruger and Pauline Wyman um, are very influential, and then my late auntie, Annie Walderblow, she was an incredible support to us, so and Annie Cecily Atkinson, another staunch, you know, um, activist and auntie in Melbourne. They just make our lives very rewarding and make us feel culturally safe. And that's really important. That's another thing that Aboriginal women do for us. You know, we often get talked about as being the backbone of the community, but people need to be careful with that because we get burnt out because we do carry so much. And so I think we need to be respected as matriarchs and we're really fighting to have that matriarchal authority respected. Mm. And always have been and you know my kids are raised in that matriarchy and Caitlin's role you know as a young artist in that space it's really important because um as a young man he's learning his culture through the matriarchy 
you know, and and it's yeah, it's something very you know, this is tens of tens of, tens of thousands of generations old what we're practicing. You know, it might be in different ways the stories, but they continue. And your work, um, I found really uh, well, just moving and and also really enlightening, Paula, because I don't know my family back six generations, you know, yeah. and that, and this and that you know um, the women in your family back that far, and and something about them I think is is pretty it's pretty cool yeah uh and i mean but what do you take from their stories because i suppose it is it is changed too through the generations that you're you're showing by by speaking about the women in your life yeah um look i think part of our responsibility as matriarchs and in kuru families you know knowing your genealogy is very very important and um you know we often get judged by white australia or non-aboriginal people for not looking aboriginal enough not being aboriginal enough you know very lot of racist uh, stereotypes you know that are based on eugenics you know it's got nothing to do with us actually it's that's when you when people speak to you like that they're dehumanizing you because you know the attempted genocide of our people is the reason that we're not all one shade and we're diverse peoples across this country anyway you know we all we're not all one not all not all one look or one way of being um so our genealogy is very important and it's what i teach my kids you know and no one has ever said to us that we don't look wemba wemba or gunditjmara you know, because it's that you carry that within you. So that the knowledge from your matriarchs and the generations um, tells you who you are. It reminds you, it grounds you, it centres you. And um, the other one generation back to from Papa is actually Joanna Ingram, who I don't know as much about. So until I learn more of those stories and we do more research in the family, I won't sort of speak for her yet or speak to her story yet but it's a great responsibility you know once you are told these stories and it's something you know like the kids probably and i did when i was younger you sort of go oh mum, you're telling me that story again but as you get older you start to appreciate that and you have more patience and understand why your mother nan and aunties repeat stories because that's how you learn we're you know we're an oral culture so memory and having respect for the the stories and the genealogy that's passed you is very important. Mm. And there's so many stories um, as part of NAIDOC being told. I've seen it on the telly and everything of Because of Her We Can. We're we're hearing stories about women all across Australia as part of this. And what do you think might come of that, um, Paola? I mean, I'm feeling... Uh, I'm learning about people that I've not heard of um, before and their their contribution, um, mm. not only to their own families but to the broader community. Um, yeah, where, where do you think this might go? I, I hope it leads to further projects and um, perhaps to more exhibitions, to more um, families doing research and, and learning and sharing stories. Um, and, you know, that has to be protected as well, a genealogy. Um, but I think... I think if there's more, you know, books, if there's more exhibitions, if there's more poetry um, that we create to, you know, further embed these stories in our, you know, it's a cultural landscape that our women have contributed to. And like you said, if you're learning about them through, um, the, the, especially social media, because our people just kill it, they're so deadly at it. There's so many amazing blackfellas on, on social media, especially women. Um, so I think... You know, maybe more more of that, more more story creating. You know, in, in future, and that's what my PhD is about. It's about celebrating our women and um, uh, Aboriginal women artists and activists, and creating a, a living archive of their work. Mm, yeah, and, and we can be sure that your family is going to keep doing that with your artistic practice and, and all that you're up to. And, and Rosie, you were saying that, um, you, you know, there'll be more things that you do um, after the success of Black to the Future. Do you have much of a sense of, of what that might look like or what the, might, the next project might be at this stage? At this stage, we've also been told that we should travel it and seeing mum's like not her exhibition but next matriarchy that she's in uh being traveled from there to here it's quite inspiring to see that and how that works and i would love to do that as well um i would actually personally really like to take it home like to wemba wemba country or close to any space that that can be because oftentimes like mum was saying we live off country and it can be a little bit isolating and we've got such an amazing group you know of extended family i just say family you know because you kind of choose your family at this point of deadly women around us who we've chosen to be on cool and country here 
But I always think when I do something, I'm like, I really just wish that Nan could be here, you know, because she's about three hours away and aunties and cousins could, could see this. And not many kind of youth-focused stuff happens out there as much that they would like. And I know that, and I'm always kind of thinking about that, thinking about home and also just to be up on country, mm. any excuse really. <laughs> uh, I would love that. And then obviously to keep, you know, going around to other places, like other people's countries too that are in in the exhibition. And when, like Mum was saying with social media, with this um, coming collective that I'd like to have, I would definitely like to have a social media focus and a presence. I already spend so much time on the internet and, um, and on social media. So I would definitely like to actually, you know, make a platform for people all around to be able to see what we're doing here because I always think it's just like what we do is just so deadly and just needs to be heard and mm. seen everywhere nationwide and maybe internationally too because I have had like some international responses like on Twitter some of them not always the best um from you know the states and um on on Black to the Future and it's really interesting to see so I just think the more voices that can be heard I think the better mm. and Kate and we better find out what you're planning on next I have no idea what I'm doing <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have an idea what I was doing the last time so uh, like, after my own heart it's, it's, I mean like whatever whatever comes up mm. you know I wasn't I wasn't really prepared for the last one <laughs> started planning it I was like alright let's do it rappers that's what I love <laughs> went from there so uh, so I want to be a fly on the wall on your, wall on your family. <laughs> and and the, the great thing is, too, that we were sort of milling around talking, you know, when we started, because they, they took up residency for Black to the Future um, as artists. They took up um, a residency at Footscray Arts over about a month and gathered twice a week, you know. So they did a lot of work. And he was the first one to come up with his work and said, right, I know what I want. After being really quiet, like you said before, not sure. He was the first one finished, the first one knew what he was doing. So it was great. Plays well. Um, thank you all for coming in. Um, happy NADOC. Enjoy. I mean, there's lots of stuff happening and I suppose we can't really run through it all now, but you should go into the Koori Heritage Trust and check out uh, the exhibition that we've been speaking about, the, the group exhibition next to Matriarch. Um, Paola Bella's work is in there as part of that. It's free. It's just off Fed Square there. And uh, and as Paola mentioned, a, as a talk later in the week that you can participate in and uh, lots of other stuff. You just need to head online and find out the events around the place. Um, there's, it's going to be a really dynamic week in Melbourne and all over the country. Um, thank you all for coming. Thanks, Thanks for having Appreciated. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.